Um, good to be with you guys tonight, and I understand that uh, Michael launched you into uh, the book of Mark. Anybody remember anything from last week? Just a test to see how his preaching is doing. All right, well, we won't put a grade in the mess up his 4.0. Um, anyway, uh, <clears throat> let's, uh, I just want to open with a word of prayer, and we're going to, well, actually, let's just read the scriptures that we're going to talk about tonight. Then we'll pray over them, and then we'll talk. So, um, starting with um, the Word of God in the book of Mark, chapter 16. And it says, And Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into a lake, for they were fishers of, uh, they were fishermen, or as we would say in political correct, politically correct language today, fisher people. Have to be careful, you know, when you see a manhole, it's a peephole, just so you know. Okay, um, anyway, uh, in, come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When they had gone a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. They went to Capernaum, and when the, the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed with an impure spirit cried out, what do you want from me? Uh, uh, <clears throat> what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. And immediately uh, the impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were so amazed that they asked each other, What is this, a new teaching? that with authority he gives orders to impure spirits, and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her and took her by the hand and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening, after the sun had set, uh, the people brought, all, uh, brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases and drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they explained, everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to nearby villages so I can preach there also. For that is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Now I know that tonight I bit off a little bit of a bigger chunk than 
sometimes, but that's kind of the way the Gospel of Mark goes, how it flows. I think Michael probably brought out last time that each Gospel portrays Jesus in a different way. And, you know, if you had four people looking at an accident and witnessing it, you know, the guy who is a body and fender man who's looking at it is probably going to talk about the damage done to the cars and emphasize that. You know, and the guy that's a race car driver, he's going to talk about the how fast the cars are going and the tra trajectory of the collision and all of that, because he's going to emphasize those things. And each person from their background is going to have some of that woven in. And although we know that the Bible is the inspired Word of God, that is God-breathed and written through the Holy Spirit, God chose also to use human instruments. It says in Second Peter, holy men of God spoke or wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So sometimes they didn't even know what they were, understand what they were writing, First Peter tells us. But uh, and even the angels were looking down trying to figure out what was going on as God was guiding the pen but yet we know in Scripture that sometimes the personality of the writer comes right in, even though it is inspired by God. So Mark uh, was a guy who was younger than most of the disciples, probably a very young man. Many people feel he was discipled by Peter. Um, Peter makes mention of him in his epistle and even refers to Mark as his son. We know Mark was a guy who took off on a missionary journey in the book of Acts with uh, Paul, Saul, and Barnabas, and he turned back and was like a total failure. You know, he wanted to go out on this mission trip and he wanted to serve God, and then he falls flat on his face. When the going got rough, he hightailed it back home. And later on, there was even a dissension between Paul and Barnabas over Mark as to whether they should bring him on another missionary journey. But Paul, at the very end of his life, writing about Mark, says when Paul's in prison, about to die, bring Mark because he is profitable to me for the ministry. So even though Mark was a total failure as a servant at one point, later on he grows into something that is very effective for God, and Paul sees him as someone who's very valuable. That's an encouragement to me because how many of us have looked at our life and seen areas in our Christian walk where we totally failed? I mean, we started at the beginning of the year and we said, man, I'm going to read through the Bible. And you got to the 1st of February, February 2nd, 3rd, 4th, whatever the date is today, and how well are you doing in that? I mean, we sometimes fail in the very things that we set out to do, even though it's with a good purpose. And Mark was one of those guys. So he portrays Jesus as the servant, even though he himself was referred to as an unprofitable servant or one who had failed in service, God gives him the grace to write about the perfect servant. And throughout this book, it's just kind of racing along. There's a, there's a word that... Um, is used for the idea of immediately or at once. And it's used like 48 times in Mark. Like Jesus is just going from one thing to another. So Mark never camps very long on anything. So I don't want to spend a lot of time introducing this because I know Michael's already covered it. But I want to say that Mark starts off very briefly covering a lot of different things, but he first of all focuses on the identity of who Jesus is. And he begins this chapter, we didn't read it, 
but with the idea that Jesus is the Son of God. It's in verse 1. The gospel of the Son of God. Okay? He is portraying right away the identity of Jesus. Then in verses 2 and 3, he's going to show that that uh, identity is backed up by the prophets of the Old Testament. And he quotes from Malachi uh, chapter 1, and he also quotes from Isaiah, basically Old Testament scriptures that give witness to who Jesus is. Then he goes to the testimony of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was a guy who had, was, uh, Jesus said he was the greatest of all the prophets. Okay? But John the Baptist was a very humble guy. He's a guy who said, he must increase, but I must decrease. Okay? He must become greater, I must become less. He's very, very humble. All right? uh, and he's out there in the wilderness with um, eating grasshoppers and, and uh, wild honey, and he's wearing this camel's garb uh, wardrobe that was what prophets wore. And... Uh, but he's, he's basically saying about Jesus, I'm not even worthy to loose his sandal. But he's, he's one who's greater than I. They come to John the Baptist like, tell us about yourself. He said, well, I'm just, I'm just someone who's a voice crying in the wilderness, which is what we are today too. We're just voices crying in the wilderness about, you know, because this world is kind of a wilderness. Anybody listen to the news or watch the news? Good for you. Okay. Well, if there was one guy in here or person in here that follows the news, you'd have to say that our whole political situation in this country is just like pretty screwed up. Okay. Uh, half the time, it's all focused on how, about power, and rather than care about the needs of the people, it's how one party can get dominance over another party, and and so in all the confusion, as people are looking for answers. We need to be like John the Baptist, where we're like a voice crying in the wilderness, letting people hear the truth and exalting Jesus. And that's what John does, is he just humbly exalts Jesus, tells how Jesus is worthy. He's not drawing any attention to himself. And you know, that's the, that's the way a true servant should be of, of, of the Lord, is just pointing to Jesus and not trying to worry about what people think about us. Then, then he moves uh, from that witness to one more. He had his own witness. He had the prophet's witness of the Old Testament. He had the witness of John the Baptist. And then he has the witness of the Holy Spirit and the Father. Because he baptizes Jesus, and the Holy Spirit comes and descends on him like a dove. Remember that? Okay. And then the, the heavens are open, and there's a witness from above that says, this is my beloved son, okay, the one that I'm well pleased with. That was from the Father. So all of these testimonies speak of the, the identity of who Jesus is. Mark wants to make sure we understand that. And I hope tonight that all of us recognize and realize that Jesus was not just an ordinary man. He was fully man, but he was also fully God, and he didn't make any bones about claiming to be that. Some of us have, in apologetics, you study this thing like liar, lunatic, or Lord. So you can't say Jesus was a good man, but he's not God, because he actually said that he was God. So if he said he was God, and he's not, then he's lying. So he's not just a good man.
Okay? So he either was telling the truth, or he's, ab or he's crazy. I mean, he's, he's, he was either lying, or he's crazy, or if he was telling the truth, then the only alternative we have is that he's actually Lord. And we have the responsibility to recognize that. It tells us that every knee is going to bow, and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So you think of the person that you know out there who just hates God. Just know this, one day they will bow before the authority of God's own son and recognize who he is, that he's the Messiah, that he's the Christ, that he is the son of God, that he's both deity, but he took upon himself human flesh when he came into this world and became a man and walked it through it, living an absolutely perfect life, and then going to a cross and stretching out his hands in love for you and I and hanging there between heaven and earth as he gives his life on that cross for you and me. So Jesus comes up out of the water in his baptism and he's, he's driven into the wilderness and he's out there for how long? 40 days, okay? And he's tempted and Mark tells us he's with the wild animals. Okay, so Jesus is in a, not in a perfect environment out there. He's in a very hostile wilderness, and he's hungry, and Mark doesn't go into all the details, but while he's there, he actually is tempted by Satan at the end of that time. So he goes 40 days without eating, and sometimes when we're really weak and we're really famished, you see the humanity of Jesus here. What happens? Satan comes, and he's like, oh, you're hungry. Why don't you just command these stones to be made into bread? Jesus answers back, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. So if you study it out, every single time the temptation comes to Jesus, he answers back with this little phrase. It is written. So what is he doing? He's going back and using the word of God, the sword of the spirit, to slay Satan. He doesn't have to quote chapters, doesn't have to quote a whole lot. He just uses one little phrase out of scripture and Satan is defeated. And Satan comes like three different times this way. And each time Jesus answers him the very same way. It is written. See, the Bible that we have is so powerful. It's part of our weapons, okay? Paul writes in, in Romans, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down strongholds, casting down imaginations and reasonings, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing every thought into captivity into the obedience of of Christ. So we can follow Jesus' example. That's why we should memorize scripture and know it. So when Satan comes, uh, we have an answer. One uh, Martin Luther, this great uh, reformer from the Reformation, uh, one day his wife, you know, if you're going to be used of God, you're going to get attacked, okay? His wife comes into the bedroom and she sees him down on the floor, and he's got a, a, his Bible open, and his finger is on the Bible. And she says, Martin, what are you doing? And he said, Catherine, the devil was just coming around trying to make me doubt my salvation. And I figured he'd be in the darkest part of the room. 
So he had his finger down on John 5, 24, which says, Truly, truly, I say unto you, he that hears my words and believes on him that sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death unto life. And he's like, see, devil, there it is. And he's showing him the verse. You know? That is our weapons that we have. Okay? So Jesus defeats Satan. Adam was put in a perfect environment. He's tempted of the devil. What happens? He fails. Jesus is put in a hostile environment. He's tempted of the devil. What does he do? He proves true. I like to put it this way. Jesus wasn't tempted to, to see whether or not he could sin, but he was tempted to prove that he couldn't. It was evident by that, that proving that he was that he went through and did not compromise, did not fail, is because he was a holy, righteous, sinless Son of God. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Jesus was absolutely perfect, spotless. Every every uh, step that he took down here in this world was in perfect obedience to his Father. That's why Paul writes about him. The one who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Okay? So we come to this next section, and Jesus goes out and he sees a couple of people that are fishing, like Simon and Andrew, and he says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of people. Okay? And what happens? They leave, immediately drop what they're doing, and they follow him. And then he goes a little farther, and he finds two more disciples, and he says, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And they were, the first people were casting their nets. The second group is like repairing their nets. And both of them immediately leave their nets and follow him. Okay, so we're moving now. Mark had showed us the identity of who Jesus is and backed it up with these different witnesses, including the Father and the Holy Spirit. Now he moves to the authority of who Jesus is. And in this authority, he's going to say, to a bunch of people, I mean, how many people have seen a bumper sticker on somebody's car, something like this, you know, I'd rather be fishing, or something about going fishing? Anybody ever seen that? Because dudes like to fish, you know? I like to fish. We just like to fish. So if you're doing something you really like, it, somebody comes along and just says, like, hey, follow me. And you just leave it all behind? That, that, there's the authority of who Jesus is. They actually made a good living. Zebedee's sons uh, that were, are mentioned here, they left the nets with the servants. So this is a very profitable fishing business. They're making a lot of money doing it. Well, what happens? These guys just up and leave because of the authority of Jesus saying, Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. I want to make a point here, and this, stay with me, all right? This is not the first time Jesus had encountered these guys. If you read other Gospels, you'll find very early on, Jesus had already met them. In fact, in John's Gospel, 
in chapter 2 in Cana of Galilee, those first four chapters deal with this early ministry of Jesus long before the other gospel writers pick up and take, take off about the disciples, those guys were already at the wedding. And so you say, Tim, why do you make a big point out of it? Okay, I'll tell you why. There is a popular saying among Christians today where people will say, I'm a Jesus follower. You ever heard that? Anybody hear that? Like, it's kind of like, you know, I, I would rather say to people, I'm a Jesus follower than I'm a Christian. Because they have a bad connotation if they you know, so I don't really want to experience the reproach of Jesus, so I'll just say I'm a Jesus follower. It just kind of sounds cooler. And so sometimes in a, a more hip, hip, cool vernacular, uh, people throw out that expression. You say, Tim, why do you make a big deal out of that? I'm going to tell you why. Because unless, and so we stay, I should just say this, we stay away from terms like, I'm saved. I'm born again. I've been regenerated. I'm a new creation in Jesus. I'll just say, I'm a Jesus follower. You know, like people say, oh, I follow Buddha. I follow Confucius. I follow Muhammad or whatever. I'm just following. I will tell you something. If you have never been regenerated, if you have never been born again, if you've never been saved, if you've never had a moment in your life where you had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ where you recognize I'm a sinner and the only, my, right, my sins are going to sink me into a place where I cannot have any standing with God. And the only righteousness I have is what Jesus did for me on the cross. And I come by faith and I embrace that and I believe it. I receive it, like John's Gospel says, to as many has received him to them gave he the right or the power to become the sons of God or children of God even to those who believe on his name. So I'm going to say this, if you have not received Jesus, if you have not accepted Jesus, if you're not saved, if you're not born again, if you're not a Christian, all these politically incorrect terms in modern Christianity, but I'm going to tell you, if you're not that, there's no way you could follow Jesus. You cannot follow Jesus in your own strength. You cannot be a Jesus follower without actually having a personal encounter and a transformation take place in your life. Because we're going to fall flat on our face. I have no power to live a Christian life apart from the power that comes when I accept Christ, the Holy Spirit comes in me and indwells me and gives me the power to actually be a Jesus follower. So, I want to be careful that we don't just throw out terms because they seem to be hip and cool, but we don't really stop and think about it. Nobody can be a Jesus follower until you actually come to know Jesus personally. All right? Jesus says, this is, this is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So, until you actually have a personal encounter, you can't be a Jesus follower. So Jesus had already encountered these disciples. They had already re recognized who he was and re accepted his lordship. And now they're back at their occupation. 
and he actually calls him to something else, to leave that occupation and follow him in a way where he's going to cause them to become fishers of people. From now on, he says in one gospel, you're going to catch people. You're going to catch men. All right? So, um, anybody here fish? Who likes to fish? I see a few. Yeah. And it's not all the dudes. We've got girls in here that like to fish, too. All right? That's cool. All right? So, but there's a lot of things about fishing. I have done a lot of fishing in my life. Here's a couple things I'll tell you. 10% of the fishermen catch 90% of the fish. It's true. Studies tell that. 10% of the fishermen catch 90% of the fish. Because most people are fishing in the wrong place, in the wrong time, with the wrong bait to catch fish. I know, because I bought a boat and I had four boys and we would go out fishing. And, you know, we'd drag our lines through the water all the time and not catch anything except, you know, a few dumb, you know, dogfish or something. And then one day, I got talking to a guy who actually always came back with salmon every day out of Gig Harbor. So he told me where he fished and how he fished, and we started imitating some of his methodology and actually became, finally, where we would actually catch more fish than he would. But, you know, it was something that by hanging out with someone else who was good at fishing, I learned how to fish. Jesus is saying to his disciples, I'm going to be leaving this world. I'm going to be going back to heaven. I'm only here for three and a half years. So I want you guys to hang out with me, and I want you to learn from me so that when I'm gone, you will be able to carry on this work and this ministry. And so... He calls them first to salvation, then in this passage to discipleship. Can't really be a disciple until you know Jesus. That's my point, okay? And then they, they follow him and they go serving. And um, when he's gone, he's going to leave all of this ministry that we read about in the book of Acts and all these epistles that are in the New Testament to these guys who he saw who were a bunch of fishermen casting nets, okay? We would call it blue-collar, ordinary peoples. Probably at least seven of Jesus' disciples were fishermen, okay? Just ordinary people. What do we learn from that? See, uh, if I had been choosing the disciples, I, if you start reading the account of them, I don't think I would have picked any of them except maybe Judas, because Judas was the only one that had some kind of pedigree, like he came from a different area and was a little more sophisticated in his background. And I mean, people, they'd say to me, oh, well, if only so-and-so would become a Christian, they'd be so awesome for God. I think, no, they wouldn't. Because God doesn't choose just awesome people to do his work. He chooses ordinary people. In fact, in 1 Corinthians it says, he chooses the weak things to confound the mighty and the foolish things to confound the wise. And then he says, why? So that no one would boast before him, but as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God picks up people that nobody thinks it would ever be used and uses them powerfully. 
the Billy Graham, how many here have heard of Billy Graham? Okay, so yeah, you, you guys know. Okay, the Billy Graham of the 1800s was a guy named D.L. Moody. And D.L. Moody becomes a Christian. He wants to help serve, and they ask him about teaching a Sunday school class. And he asked about a Sunday school class, and they said, well, we, don't, we can't give you one. Go out and get your own class. And so this guy comes along and sees him on the, sitting on a log by the riverbank or by the shores of Lake Michigan uh, on a log with a guy on his lap, a little kid, and he's trying to read the Bible, and he's stuttering and stammering over the words, and there's a couple other kids sitting there. And the guy makes this comment. He says, if God can use that man, he could use anybody. And God picked up the Almighty, who just stepped out in simple faith to trust him and used him in a very, very powerful way because God uses ordinary people. I hope that's an encouragement to you and encouragement to me. I think, you know, God take the people that we would never think he would use. And that way nobody can boast before him because he's chosen the foolish things to confound the wise and the weak things to confound the mighty so that he gets the glory and the credit. So the disciples follow him, and then they go into this, we read it, okay? They go into a synagogue. And in the synagogue, there's people worshiping God, supposedly, Jewish synagogue, got the Old Testament scriptures reading. And Jesus stands up, he's like the guest rabbi, to read in the synagogue, and what happens? Anybody know? What's the interruption? An unclean spirit. Okay, if I were going to liken to anything today, what church do you go to? What church do you go to? Christ the Rock, okay. All right, my daughter-in-law grew up in that church. But imagine, I forget your name. What's that? Kayla. Kayla. So Kayla goes to Christ the Rock and... A guy gets up to speak, and all of a sudden, this unclean spirit launches out and starts, oh, man, we know who you are, blah, 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 blah. It kind of freak you out. So what is a demon doing in church? Demons don't go to church, do they? Do they? There's a demon in church in this case, all right? And it took... He could have been there. That man with his demonic spirit that's oppressing him could have sat there for years maybe and it was never exposed until Jesus shows up. And when Jesus shows up, hey, we know who you are. You're the son of God. And, you know, Jesus said, like, oh, wow, this demon, he knows who I am. This is good. I'm getting some fanfare here. Somebody said the devil's condemnation is way better than the devil's commendation. Not wanting the devil cheering you on, it's better to have his criticism. When Paul and Silas in Acts 16 were going up to a prayer time, this fortune teller comes up and she's got a spirit of divination in her. And she says, oh, these men are the servants of the Most High God which show unto us the way of salvation. And what do they do? They say, oh, this is great. This girl's telling all these people. She's told all these fortunes, and she's talking about... They recognized it was a demon. They didn't accept that. 
they rebuked that demon. Notice that the attention wasn't on the Most High God, it was on these men. Satan's not going to exalt Jesus, he's going to exalt people in substitutes and counterfeits. But he is alive and well on planet Earth. And here's Jesus teaching in the temple. And it says, they're amazed at his teaching because he spoke as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. Uh, the, the rabbis would always quote these rabbis that lived before. Well, so-and-so said this, and so-and-so said that. You ever meet those people? Well, John MacArthur believes this, and Beth Moore says that. What does the Bible say? What does God say? I mean, I'm not putting people down. There's, you know, We can be thankful for faithful servants of Jesus, but the real authority is with what God says. To be able to speak the word of God, there's authority with that. And so Jesus is not speaking about, well, this rabbi said that and that rabbi said that. He's just speaking like, here's what God says. Somebody asked Billy Graham one time, they said, how come you preach with such authority? He says, because I use the Bible as my authority. Okay? We should never be afraid to stand on the word of God. It's living and powerful. Jesus answered Satan every time. It is written. That's our authority. So he spoke with that. Now this demonic guy manifests himself, and Jesus, with authority, rebukes. He says, first of all, he says, be muzzled. That's literally in the Greek what he's saying. Not just hold your peace, but be muzzled. Come out of him. And this guy's like contortioning, and the demon comes out of him. You ever seen that? You guys even believe in demons? No such thing, Right? Tell you a couple of stories. My parents were always taking people in. They took in a young lady. They didn't realize that she had a demonic spirit in her. And uh, she was had problems and whatnot, so they took her in. And I'm just like a 17-year-old kid, still living in my parents' basement. Typical millennial back then. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, anyway, and so I'm 17. I'm living in my parents' basement. And... I wake up one morning and there's this gal standing at the side of my bed. And she's got hair hanging down this way in front of her. And she's peeking out through her hair. And she looks at me through her and she says, Timothy, I love you. Talk about nightmares, man. I go, you get out of here right now. You know, she kind of turned and went away. Well, she leaves and I'm laying in my bed and all of a sudden I can't move. I mean, I try to sit up, I try to twist, I try to turn, and I'm like pinned to the bed. Because whatever demons she was had around, some of them were staying in my bedroom. And I'm not making this up, so I'm like, what do I do? I start quoting scripture. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Satan doesn't like to hear about the cross. He doesn't like to hear about the finished work of Jesus. So I just started quoting him stuff about even 1 John where he says, Little children, let no man deceive you. He who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil sins from the beginning. For this purpose was the Son of God manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Satan, you're going to be destroyed. And I just started quoting the word. And you know what? 
that demonic presence left. And I've experienced it a number of other times. I'm not here to entertain you with stories. I've just seen the, the one time I was preaching down in the streets of Portland, in the, out of the Portland Rescue Mission, early on in my, my ministry career. It's not really a career, but my t- beginnings of ministry. And uh, this lady walks up to me after this service, and I thought, what's she saying? She looks at me, and she's, wow, I've spoken in tongues before. So? Okay. And then, then uh, so I'm thinking, oh, she must be a Christian, you know? And then all of a sudden, I recognized that she was speaking through a demonic spirit. And so I, I started to address that. And she looks at me and she says, you and your family are taking a trip to California and you're all going to be killed. Well, the crazy thing is I was leaving the next day for a Bible conference in California that I was asked to speak at down in Southern California. She had no way of knowing that separate through a demonic spirit. And my first response was, oh, I better not go. I might be killed. Like, wait a minute. I don't have to fear Satan. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. All right? It doesn't mean that Satan, you know, that I'm, I'm better than Satan. I'm not. I'm no match for the devil. The Bible says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the wiles of the devil. And having done all to stand, stand. And he goes on to talk about all that armor. And i got to stand in the armor of God. But when I do that, when I'm saturated in the word of God, when I'm filled with the Holy Spirit of God, I don't have to be afraid of what the enemy can do. In fact, the devil trembles, this old saying, when he sees the weakest saint upon their knees. When he sees us leaning on the power of God, and exercising the authority that we have been given from Jesus against Satan by using the scriptures and using the authority, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore into all the world. Preach the gospel, the great commission, okay? I don't have authority, but I've been given the ability to operate in Jesus' authority. Does that make sense? So, I don't just say, Satan, I rebuke you in the name of Tim Cedarland. There's no power in that. That's dumb, okay? But I can say, in the name of Jesus, I command you to come out of that person, to release that person. And I have seen that the very authority that Jesus exercised can be practiced by believers today. I could entertain you with stories, but I'm not going to do that because that's not why I'm here. I just want to tell you that we have access to the authority that Jesus had in that synagogue because of Jesus. We can operate in his authority because all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. So we then can go therefore, not in our authority, but in his authority. Does that make sense? So he deals with that, and he casts out that demon, and uh, then he leaves. And he goes to the house 
of Peter and Andrew. Peter and Andrew didn't just go to church that day and see Jesus and listen to him preach. But they actually brought Jesus home with them. Isn't that a novel idea? That you might just, like, instead of just going to church and hearing about Jesus and experiencing the presence of God and then go home and go about your week, that you might actually bring Jesus home with you? A little tongue-in-cheek humor, but that's what they did. They brought him home. And uh, Jesus is there, and I'm sure they're probably apologizing because... Things are kind of chaotic because Peter's mother-in-law is sick. So there's no food ready for Sabbath dinner. And so what happens is they explain to Jesus, oh, oh, oh mother-in-law, she's like down for the count. I don't know what happened. Maybe it's coronavirus. I don't know. You know, COVID-19 or something. Anyway, she's out. She's sick. And what does Jesus do? He heals her. Again, demonstrating, we saw first, his authority to call the disciples away from their fishing that they loved to do. They did go back to it at one point after the cross. Jesus got them straightened out on that. And then he has authority to speak in a way that the religious leaders of the day say, man, he's not just speaking... He didn't just write out a sermon and read it in church. Um, it, you know, he, didn't, he didn't just get up there to try to impress us with great eloquence and how well he's laid out all the things. He speaks with the power and authority of God. He speaks like someone who's actually filled with the Holy Spirit. Man, he can draw scripture from here and there because he knows that that's the authority that God has set up and he's going to demonstrate it so disciples will know what to do through the ages. Okay? He demonstrated his authority. He demonstrated his authority over demons. And now he just, they're in this house. They bring Jesus home from church. Good thing to just not just go to church on Sunday and thrive during the week, but actually have the Lord about everything that you do. And he raises her up, and what does she do? She serves them. You see, if you've been delivered from something, you probably have a little bit of a responsibility toward the person who delivered you. So, Kayla, if you were in debt, like $10,000, and they're going to put you in jail, and I just like, you know, um, somebody here came along and gave you $10,000 so you wouldn't have to go to jail, would you have, like, no thought of any response to them at all? Or would you, like... Say, man, what can I do for you? You would want to reciprocate. You see? And so Jesus heals this person, and she gets up and right away starts serving everybody in the place. And you and I have been healed by something far greater than some fever that she had, okay? Some COVID-19 or something, whatever it was back in the day. We have been delivered from the power of darkness, Satan, and translated into the kingdom of his dear son. We have been regenerated, born again, 
God's gone to great lengths to go all the way to the cross through his son who took our place, who was our substitute, who took the load of sin and guilt we should have been punished for for all eternity. And he took it in the concentrated three hours of darkness on the cross in our place and in the end said, it is finished, completed that work, sealed it with his blood, went into the grave, came out in victory, rescued us. We don't even understand half the time what we're being rescued from. Some of us think we're pretty good. If we could really see what we've been rescued from, we're like, man, Jesus, how can I serve you? What can I do? It demanded, like Kayla said, a response. And they get up and they serve. Well, people hear about this. So what happens? After the sun goes down, it says, the whole town comes. And they bring everybody who's sick and everybody who's demon-possessed, and Jesus heals them all. Now, why did they wait till the sun went down? Trivia. Why do you think they waited till the sun went down before Jesus started? they started bringing people to Jesus? It was a Sabbath. Go to the head of the class. Okay. Jews, the Sabbath was from sundown to sundown. Saturday night or Friday night when the sun went down, that was the beginning of the Sabbath. And Saturday when the sun went down, you could be playing. I, I went to, uh, I played in high school on a basketball team that we had two star players. They were Seventh-day Adventists, okay? And one of the guy's parents were not like his strict Seventh-day Adventists, so, so he could play basketball on Friday nights even after the sun went down. But the other guy was like a star player, and we went to the state tournament. So it was a good basketball team. And he was a star player, and our coach began to try to schedule all the games that he could not on Friday night. And so he scheduled a lot of them, ended up being on Saturday. So we'd be playing at halftime, and we would be losing, and then Eddie would show up because the sun went down and come in in the second half and win the ball game for us. And so a Jew would not do anything before the sun went down. Sun went down, they could travel a different distance now. They could go further. There was only a limited space they could travel and they couldn't do any work and all those things that were part of the Sabbath that is a picture of the rest that we have in now in Jesus, okay? But they, uh, the sun goes down, and now Jesus heals them all. Now get this. He must have been up pretty late that night, right? I mean, he'd been, he'd been healing people. They didn't even show up till it was dark, and he, all these people come, and he's there late into the evening healing all these people. And then what does it say? I'll tell you what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, Jesus, after an exhausting time of ministry, slept in until 10 o'clock the next day to rest up and recoup because you need your time, me time. Doesn't say that. He's left really, really late, but what's it say? Early in the morning, 
a great while before it was daytime or the sun came up, Jesus went off to a solitary place to pray. He's got to pray. Now, let me just say something. Jesus needed to do that, but we don't, right? What's that? We need more. He's the Son of God. He's setting us an example. But in total dependence as a man while he was here on earth, he, even though he was like, had all kinds of excuses, well, I was really serving God last night, he gets up a great while before his day and goes up to pray. Because he recognized that the victory came from that dependence upon his Father. Every step that he took, not my will, but yours be done. And that's where, where we are. We, when we start to operate in dependence, we realize, i got to spend some time in prayer. I need to pray the scriptures into my life so I can go out and effectively work for God. Because it's just like that. Now, Michael told you that my wife and I were involved in starting this ministry, and we had teams of leaders, and God was moving in a powerful way when this ministry started, and people were getting saved, were baptizing them in the harbor. Some of those people go to my church now, the church that I, I go to and I'm a part of, and it's just, it's just amazing what God was doing. But here's what would happen. We'd be up there ministering to people till 11. The leaders would still be praying over it all till midnight sometimes, get home, and the next morning we would just feel pummeled, okay? And so we started praying against counterattacks. Because if you're busy serving God, Satan will attack you. He will. And so we say, God, thank you for helping us tonight. But we just pray that Satan won't come along and snatch the seed of the word of God that's gone out here. And we pray for all these leaders because until we really started praying that way, we, the next morning, I mean, it was like somebody had beat on me all night. And other leaders were experiencing that because we were in warfare. If you don't experience any warfare, you're missing out. Seriously. It's, it's kind of cool to be on Satan's radar screen because it means God's doing something and things are happening. And, and uh, you know, we've got a lot to reciprocate for in view of all that Jesus has done for us. Because we not only know the identity of who Jesus is, but we also know the authority of the one who could call people to become fishers of men. And we can do that too through Thrive, through other things that we're involved in. We get to call people to become followers of Jesus. We get to deal, we get to speak with authority because we're speaking the mind and word of God prophetically for the moment as we walk in the power of God and stand on the word of God. We get to deal with people who are in bondages that manifest demonic manifestations. We don't fear that. We walk boldly at it and we deal with it in the power and strength of the Holy Spirit. And we bring Jesus home with us. We don't just think about him at Thrive or at church on Sunday morning. But like Peter and Andrew said, hey, Jesus, you can cast out demons like that. You come to my house. Let's have dinner. I want to know you better. I want to walk with you. 
We go home, open up the word of God. We spend time in prayer. We bring Jesus home with us. And then we see him start to do things through us that brings healing to other people who then those people get up and reciprocate, not to us, but to Jesus in adoration and service and worship like Peter's mother-in-law. I imagine Peter's mother-in-law probably thought, who is this guy that my son-in-law, you know how mother-in-laws can be, my son-in-law is supposed to be taking care of my daughter. He leaves his fishing business to follow him. He gives up his lucrative business. But if she had any doubts, they were all dispelled when she's laying helpless in a bed and Jesus walks in and very compassionately takes her by the hand and lifts her up. And she's so moved by all that just happened, instantane instantaneous healing, that she ministers to all of them. And people hear about it, and so they bring others, and the whole town comes and gets ministered. Ministry is contagious. God starts moving and working. One person just starts operating in the Spirit. Other people start operating. And then revival breaks out. And now the whole town is affected. And then Jesus demonstrates where the power comes from. Though he's exhausted, though he was up very late into the night, he gets up early and spends time in fellowship with his father. What an example. What a roadmap for us in our Christian life of following and serving Jesus. It's Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word tonight, and just uh, bless the small groups. I thank you for the privilege to minister out of this book of Mark, and where we can look, Lord Jesus, and see who you are, your identity. You are the Son of God. You're the one who walked on water. You're the one who healed the sick, raised the dead, opened the eyes of the blind, went into the grave after accomplishing redemption for us and came out in victory. You're the one who's coming again. And Lord, as we're here in this, these last hours to live and serve, Lord, help us to minister in your power and to follow you, to be saturated with the word, to be in dependence upon you so that we can see demonic strongholds broken in the power and in the name of Jesus for his glory. And so Lord, just bless your word tonight. Just encourage everybody here. Just help us all to be people that exalt you more and more and more each and every day of our lives. What a privilege, what an honor it is to represent you, Jesus, on this earth, a place where you were despised and rejected of men, yet one day you will reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. Thank you that we are your ambassadors, we are your representatives, we are your mouthpiece here, we are your hands and feet. Use us, Lord, in service for you, for the glory of Jesus, in whose mighty name we pray. Amen and amen.